Well, let me invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Acts chapter 25. And this morning we'll be looking at the first 12 verses. So, Paul is still at Caesarea. Uh, Felix has been recalled back to Rome. He turned out to be a defective ruler, so now uh, Caesar wants to remove him from office, which he did. And uh, due to the uh, intercession of his brother, it probably spared his life. So Felix is now being replaced by Governor Festus. So this is where we're looking now in uh, Acts chapter 25. Paul has been there for two years, incarcerated, not in some deep, dark dungeon, but he's in uh, the governor's palace there in Caesarea, but he's still under Roman custody. And uh, so we'll pick it up in Acts chapter 25, starting in verse 1. So as I read this for you, I again remind you that we're reading the inspired Word of God. So may the Spirit of God open our eyes to behold wonderful things from His truth. Verse 1. Festus then, having arrived in the province, three days later went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul and they were urging him, requesting a concession against Paul that he might have him brought to Jerusalem, at the same time setting an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea, that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, he said, let the influential men among you go there with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. And after he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea. And on the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. After Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. While Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. And may God bless the reading of his word. Well, the Roman judicial system had not been quite fair to the Apostle Paul. Uh, Felix knew that Paul was innocent, but really refused to release him, probably for several reasons. Number one, he probably reckoned if he released the Apostle Paul that it would create 
an uprising among the Jews if, if the Roman government just set him free. And so he didn't want that to happen. And also he was hoping for a bribe, as we see at the end of chapter 25, 24, excuse me. So justice is often elusive in the world. The church has not promised justice in this life. Rather, we are promised persecution in this life. So how do we look at these times of injustice? How do we look at prison times that the Apostle Paul is going through? And I think uh, in light of all this going on in our own election system and many who feel like there is a great deal of injustice going on, I think this is kind of an interesting passage to be looking at together this morning. And I think we can glean some helpful wisdom from Paul's experience. Well, let's begin in verse 1. Uh, Festus, then having arrived in the province, three days later went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Now the year is probably the end of the year 59 A.D. or early uh, A.D. 60. And Festus now is going to replace Felix and he's going to rule for about two years and he's going to die. So a relatively short rule. But his job is basically to clean up the mess left by Felix. So the Jews are... They're a challenge to govern under any circumstances. Uh, and that's why Felix had such a difficult time. Festus is going to have a difficult time as well. The whole nation of Israel is... <clears throat> there's a lot of unrest. There's a lot of uh, rebellion being incited within the nation because of the overlord Roman Empire. So there's all this conflict. There's all this uh, animosity between the Romans and the Jews. And ultimately, this is going to crescendo at the end of this decade in the years 66 through 70 AD. This is the year 60 here. And there's going to be a lot of insurgency going on among the Jews. A lot of attacking Romans when they can. And ultimately, the Roman 10th Legion, under the military leadership of General Titus, is going to come down and ransack Jerusalem, destroy the city, destroy the temple. So all of that is just a few years down the road. So Festus now is injected into this very politically charged environment. And his job is to keep the peace. Now, when he arrived, he spent three days in Caesarea, then he immediately went to Jerusalem to meet with the Jewish leaders there. So, if you look at his character, he dove right into his responsibilities, so that's good. He's not delaying, he's not uh, trying to just wish problems would go away, he's willing to address them face on, so he goes to Jerusalem. And uh, in many ways, he, he seems to have a bit of a better character than Felix, although he was crafty in dealing with a lot of the, the Jewish insurgency going on even at this time. Remember the Sicarii that we talked about uh, a few chapters ago in the book of Acts. These were the Jews who carried their little daggers inside their cloaks and they would get around Jews who were pro-Roman and they would assassinate them and stab them in the midst of the 
temple or they would form raids against the Romans or pro-Roman Jews. And the way Festus would deal with that is he would insert his imposters among the Sicarii and other robber bands and he would impose, insert his uh, imposters who would promise to organize and lead the bandits against the Romans. And they'd say, okay, meet me out here in the wilderness on this particular day and we'll organize and we'll go attack the Romans. And of course, Festus knew all about it, he planned all about it, and he had his own troops hidden away. So when all the robbers got together, they would swarm on them, attack them, and try to uh, slaughter them all. So he was a very crafty dealer with a lot of the issues going on. So in verse 2, we read that the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews, so they, they find out where they meet with Festus in Jerusalem and they bring charges against Paul. And notice they're urging him in verse 3, requesting a concession against Paul that he might have him brought to Jerusalem and at the same time setting an ambush to kill him on the way. So they want a concession, i.e. they want a political favor. That's what they're asking Festus for. Now obviously Festus is, is a newbie on the scene. He's just coming into his authority. So obviously he wants to make a good impression. He wants to try to be a peacemaker if he can. So he would be very open to being persuaded. So they're asking him for a favor. And the favor is very simple. You've got Paul in Caesarea bring him to Jerusalem and we'll hold the trial here in Jerusalem. Kind of sounds like an innocent request. But it's kind of interesting that this is the one thing that has been stewing in their brains for two years. That they have not been able to put to death the Apostle Paul. And so now when Festus arrives, the new Roman governor... It seemed like the very first thing they come to him with is you've got a guy in Caesarea by the name of Paul and bring him here so we can have the trial here. And all the while, they're planning to ambush him and kill him. And if that doesn't work, to try to get him convicted in, in Jerusalem so they can kill him then. So they've been, they've been possessed by this desire to kill Paul for two years. So when they finally meet with Festus, that's what's on their heart and mind. They want to lure Paul out of his protective custody by the Romans in Caesarea so they can hope to kill him. Now again, Festus would want to be on good terms with the Jews. Again, his job is to maintain peace and order. But uh, to his own credit, he does not give in to their request, but actually invites them to come to Caesarea and they'll do the trial in Caesarea. You know, all of this, what the Jews are doing here, just speaks loudly that you can't always trust religion, to say the least. Sometimes religion can be the cause of some of the most atrocious evils in the world. The Jewish leaders were the leaders of the most favored nation in history. They were enlightened by the law of God. They had historically observed the miracles of God. They had received God's covenants and God's promises. They were the nation from which their own Messiah came from. 
And yet they're guilty of murdering their own Messiah and persecuting to the death His followers. Truly Jesus said of them that they were like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness on the inside. Religion without a humble faith in Jesus Christ is worthless and evil. It's idolatry. It's worshiping false gods. Religion without a humble faith in Christ is evil because it's promoting what is contrary to the kingdom of Christ. And sadly, that's Judaism of the first century. Now again, in verses 4 and 5, Festus does not take their bait. Verse 4, Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea, that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore he said, let the influential men among you go there with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. So at this point, he's going to spend eight or ten more days at Jerusalem in verse 6. And then he goes down to Caesarea and on the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. So at this point, we find that uh, Festus goes back to Caesarea after he spends eight or ten days in Jerusalem dealing with other matters that was his responsibility. And he goes back and he sits on his tribunal in verse 6. So now he's sitting on basically the represented throne of Caesar. So this is a formal trial that's about to take place now. So he's sitting on the tribunal. He's a judge behind the, the, the bench, if you will. And he orders Paul to be, to be brought forward. So in verse 7, when the, uh, after Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing, notice, many and serious charges against him which they could not prove. Many serious charges which they could not prove. They couldn't prove because they didn't have any witnesses. And according to Roman law, you've got to have got to have a witness. Well, all the main charges, they had no witness. Remember the Ephesian Jews that had come to Jerusalem for the, for the feast had claimed that he had done things in, in uh, Asia Minor that Paul was guilty of. Well, they, they weren't here to bear witness to any of that. So they had no witnesses. So legally, they didn't have a case. They had no proof. They couldn't prove it. The three main accusations and charges that they were bringing against Paul is summarized by the Apostle Paul in verse 8. While Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense against either the law of the Jews. That was one of their accusations. He has, he has broken our laws. He's blasphemed Moses or whatever. He's broken the Jewish law, number one. Or number two, against the temple... Remember, they accused him of defiling the temple by bringing a Greek into the, the inner sanctum of the temple. That's the second charge. And thirdly, in verse 8, or against Caesar, that he's broken Roman law. And he hadn't done any of those. And uh, Paul says that they can't, they can't prove it. So, Festus now in verse 9 
wants to do the Jews a favor. Verse 9, it says, But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? So when it says that Festus wanted to do a favor for the Jews, already this is not a good sign. Because before the law of God, you're not supposed to be issuing favors to anybody. The law of God, everyone is to be dealt with equally. You don't favor somebody before the law of God, before any law. There shouldn't be any partiality. There should be no favoritism. There should be no bribes before the law of God. So already the fact that he's he's in a criminal situation, a criminal case here, a trial here, and he's wanting to show them a favor is already going kind of in the wrong direction. By the way, that's why Lady Justice... When you look at a statue or a picture of her, she's always blindfolded. And why is that? Because justice is to be blind. It's not to be show favoritism based upon someone's status or looks or whatever it is. Everyone is to be equal before the law of God. But he wants to show them favor. And I can, you know, humanly you understand he's stuck on the horns of a dilemma, Festus is. On the one hand, he wants to appease the Jews so his actions wouldn't foment massive civil unrest by letting Paul go, that would that would create a, a mob situation probably. But also on the other hand, the other side of the horns of the dilemma, one was to appease the Jews so there's not social massive social unrest. The other is that Paul is a Roman citizen and he has rights. He has rights before the law. And Festus cannot ignore those. So he's kind of stuck on the horns of a dilemma. He's been put in a hot seat. He's kind of on a razor's edge. He's kind of walking a tightrope. Doesn't want to offend the Jews because he's there to keep the law in the order. If he if he does makes the wrong move, well then great civil unrest. On the other hand, if he denies Paul his Roman rights, well then he's going to get in trouble for doing that. So it's a very difficult situation that he's in. So Paul's response to that, again in verse 10, Paul says, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you all very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true, which these men accuse me, then no one can hand me over to them. And he says, I appeal to Caesar. Now notice when Festus asked the Apostle Paul about going and moving the trial to Jerusalem. Notice he doesn't command that of Paul. He asks him. He asks permission. Are you willing to go to Jerusalem, verse 9, and stand trial before me on these charges? Are you willing? He knows he's dealing with a Roman citizen. He can't impose this upon him. So he makes it a question. He makes it a request. And of course, the Apostle Paul refuses. In verse 10, I ought to be tried before Caesar's tribunal. He's a Roman citizen. He has the right to be tried at Caesar's tribunal. And Paul knows that to go to Jerusalem is a suicide mission either a death sentence or somehow this ambush, Luke 
found out about this plotting a second time to ambush the Apostle Paul. Actually, for the third time, I think. So he knows he can't go there and get a fair trial. It's going to be a death sentence if he agrees to go to Jerusalem. On the other hand, he says, I'm innocent of these accusations. And if I'm innocent, if I'm not innocent, I'm, I, I'll, I'll submit to death. But I am innocent, and if I am innocent, then no one can hand me over to the Jews. Because again, Jerusalem was a death trap. No hope for justice in Jerusalem. If the trial occurred there, they would manufacture false witnesses. They would uh, manipulate the vote, or <laughs> whatever it is. And uh, they would persuade Festus that, you know, all the ballots have been cast and he's guilty, so let's kill him. It's interesting what Jesus said of Jerusalem in Matthew 23, verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. So Jerusalem, sadly, was thirsty. Jerusalem had developed an intense thirst for the blood of prophets. And they had a reputation for being the city of prophet killers. So as a result of that, Paul really had no choice, but in verse 11, he says, I appeal to Caesar. Paul really couldn't trust Festus So he kind of took it out of Festus's hands and appealed to the Caesar himself. At this time, this is Nero Caesar who's on the throne. He came on the throne about six years prior to this particular date. If you know anything about Nero Caesar, you know that he eventually became a monster He persecuted the church. He killed Christians. He lied about the church. He burnt Rome, blaming the church. But he had not yet become that monster. So at this point in time, he had not yet turned in to the the incredible evil man that he would later become. And of course, at this point, the Apostle Paul believes that he has a better chance of uh, going to Rome and pleading his case there. So Festus in verse 12 uh, confers with his council. This would be a Roman senate or other Roman leaders there who had to kind of counsel uh, the governor on legal matters. And he uh, consulted with his council to verify that Paul had the right to be tried before Caesar and that they agreed that uh, uh, Festus would release his jurisdiction, release Paul out from under his jurisdiction to go to Rome. And they agreed. And so he eventually said to Paul in verse 12, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. All of this, I think, is really a picture of that God is in control, that God has orchestrated that Paul would escape the Jewish net the noose around his neck 
was seemingly being drawn ever tighter, but by the grace of God, he, he escaped it. And obviously, Christ has already promised to Paul that he would get him to Rome. So he had a sense of confidence that going to Rome one way or another was certainly God's will. As one author wrote, Paul had become a political pawn of men in a chess game run by God. And so we find that Paul now is going to make his way to Rome. Probably not the way he originally planned or thought, but nevertheless, God is in control. When you look at all this, um, there's several applications, I think, that we can uh, derive from, from this passage. The first one is that when we're faced with two less than desirable choices, how do you go about making a decision? See, for the Apostle Paul, his decision was, his choices were go to Jerusalem and die, or go to Rome and maybe die, but maybe not. So he knew he was going to go to Rome. He didn't know what was going to happen to him in Rome. And so to go to Jerusalem and probably certainly die, that's bad. To go to Rome and, and maybe die, well, that's a little better. But also by going to Rome, he would, be a, he would have a great opportunity for the kingdom of God. And remember, the, end of, the book of Acts ends, it says that Paul was daily preaching the kingdom of God, even when he ends up in Rome. And I think what the Apostle Paul thought is that if he went to Rome, at least he would have the opportunity to represent the cause of Christ and the church to the highest authority of the land, the Roman Empire, to Caesar himself or one of his delegates, whoever would, would oversee it. And he would have the opportunity to clarify the church. And at this time, the Roman government was starting to kind of... For a while, they saw the, the Christians under the umbrella of Judaism. And that was starting to slowly change. And yet, he would be able to go and at least publicly testify that Christianity is Judaism under the New Covenant. That Christianity is a fulfillment of the biblical promises made to the Jewish fathers. And he could clarify that for them. And for the sake of the church, and for the sake of the testimony of the gospel, and for the sake of the kingdom of God, going to Rome was the best option. They know if he's going to survive it or not. But he would have the opportunity to testify to the highest authority of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the nature of the church and its relationship to Judaism. And I think he saw that as a win-win. So even though he wasn't sure of the ultimate outcome, for the sake of the gospel witness, he said he, he, he appealed to Caesar. When he made this decision, he obviously had no revelation or vision or dream other than earlier Jesus telling him, I'm going to send you to Rome. Again, not knowing the, the outcome, but in this specific situation, the Spirit of God didn't give him a dream, appeal to Caesar, or he didn't get a revelation, or, or none of that. He had to make a decision evaluating the evidence before him. So he weighed the options, and with sanctified common sense, if we could speak of that, 
but the desire to advance the kingdom of God, he made a decision, lived with consequences. He didn't know what the ultimate consequences would be. As we know later on, it's going to be a horrendous shipwreck, a horrendous journey on a ship, and then at least two more years in custody in Rome. So he doesn't know all of that, but he's willing to live with the circumstances, the consequences. So when, when we are faced with similar difficult decisions, what do we do? Well, you pray for guidance. Pray for protection. You go to the Word of God and try to glean as much wisdom and principles that, that affect our particular difficulty. You make sure that our priorities are, are right, that our highest priority is to not please myself, but to please God. And then you choose the best option that you have and live with the consequences, whatever they may be in the providence of God. And that's what he did. There's another issue here that I think that comes up, and that is how do you deal with false accusations? Because obviously when the Jews arrived in verse 7, They stood around him bringing many and serious charges against him which they could not prove. False accusations. And on the one hand, we should not be surprised that the world attacks the church and Christ's followers with false accusations. It's been the history of God's people. Joseph was slandered by his brothers. Then he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. And then after interpreting the dream for the chief cupbearer, that guy went off and just totally forgot about him. A false friend, if you will, in that regard. So Joseph had to live with false accusations. Daniel, from his jealous political enemies who wanted to accuse him but found no corruption in him, so they had to have the the king create a law that would incriminate Daniel for his practice of worshiping God. And in Daniel 6.24, it says that those jealous political enemies of Daniel maliciously accused Daniel. So Daniel had false accusations. Jesus was accused frequently of breaking the Sabbath. He he was a victim of false accusations. So sadly, living in a world that we live in who hate Christ and they hate the Gospel, we can expect and should not be surprised by false accusations. The world hates the church, so expect it. It's part of our cross-bearing That's why Jesus told His disciples in the Beatitudes, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of Me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who are before you. So we're all going to be falsely accused. So how do we respond? Well, we certainly need to trust in God in those times. They're not easy times. They're not pleasant times. But when you do what is right and suffer for it, 
Peter says, patiently endure it and this finds favor with God. In 1 Peter 2, verse 21, Peter says concerning patient endurance when you do what is right and suffer for it. He says, you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. Who committed no sin. False accusations against the Lord. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. We have to entrust ourselves to God. We have to trust God. Secondly, we need to respond with a godly, humble response. Notice how Paul responds to their accusations. He certainly defends himself in verse 8, but he says quite simply, I have committed no offense against either the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. So he defends himself. If you go back in chapter 24 before Felix, you can see he has a longer version of his defense, but there are several things that you can observe about both defenses. Uh, He doesn't go on the attack. He doesn't respond in the flesh. I mean, he probably had dirt on these guys. I would imagine. He doesn't bring that up. He doesn't respond in sinful anger. But he seemed what appears to be, and of course this is Luke recording it, so we don't know all the inner details, but it appears that he's responding totally confident of his innocence. He's responding calmly, simply, clearly, humbly, and in a godly way. He doesn't let his tongue escape. Remember what James says. The tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. (laughs) That's this thing flapping around in, in between our jaws. It's a world of iniquity. And he, he, he put a muzzle on that. And I think responded in a more humble way. He, he, he stood his ground on his innocence. But he was very careful in what he said. He just denied the accusations. Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Peter again in 1 Peter 3 says, be humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. In Romans 12, Paul says, never pay back evil for evil to anybody. Even the world, even the ungodly. Don't pay back evil for evil to them when they falsely accuse you. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So the Apostle Paul stood his ground. He defended his innocence, but he did it in a way that was was honorable. I don't know if he forgave these guys, these Jews that came down from Jerusalem. They hated Paul. They were his enemies. Did he forgive them too? Doesn't say. I don't know. It's interesting. In Acts 7, Stephen, 
was accused of exactly the same crimes when the Jews stoned him to death. And as they were stoning Stephen to death for similar false accusations that they're making now against Paul, Stephen cried out as he fell to his knees with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He forgave those who had falsely accused him. And Jesus, falsely accused on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Did Paul forgive? Like the hope that he did. It would certainly be appropriate if we're to love our enemies. We need to forgive the world when they falsely accuse us because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Of course, justice doesn't always prevail in this sin-cursed world. And the church has to minister and witness in the midst of sinners nevertheless. That's our calling. Well, thirdly and finally, just by way of application, I mean, we've kind of looked at how he made a decision, a difficult decision under his circumstances. We looked at how he kind of responded to false accusations. And then thirdly, how we should respond when we're stuck in prison and we don't want to be stuck there. How do we respond when the saints of God have their prison time? See, Paul should not have been in prison. He was innocent. There hadn't been any charges against him. But Felix had left him in prison for two years. Now he's going to end up going to Rome and he's going to end up staying there for two years, incarcerated still. And it just reminds me that sometimes the saints of God have their prison time. For you and me, it may not be in a jail cell. For some of us, it might end up that way. Hopefully not. But there are other kinds of prisons. Financial prisons. Emotional prisons. Health prisons. Things just don't seem to get better with my health. Political prisoners. And I think whenever we're stuck in a situation... Or say in Paul's case, he's innocent. He shouldn't be kept in incarceration, but he is. There's nothing he can do about it. So what do you do? What do we do? Well, we have to understand in those times that God's ways are not our ways. We have to learn to submit to the sovereignty of Almighty God. God has the right to overrule your plans and my plans to put us on a different path than what we want. So that was certainly true with the Apostle Paul. When that happens, we must drill into our heads over and over and over again. God is in control. God is good. And God will bring good out of this. This is what He has promised to us. Nothing that happens is outside of God's plan for our lives. Whether it's in the elections or whatever circumstances we're facing, God is in control. When it seems that others are in control, we must remember that God is in control. When we feel that we're thrown into the hands of men, we must always remember that the hands of men are controlled by the hands of Almighty God. So that ultimately, if God is in control and if God is good and promised to bring good out of it, then we can have peace and hope. We must remember that God is able to bring a garden out of a desert. 
He's able to make a dry riverbed flow with water again. That God is able to make a, a dry, thorny cactus bloom with some of the prettiest flowers and blossoms imaginable. And God can do all that in your life. If it's a cactus, if it's a desert, if it's a dry riverbed, our God can make life and blessing spring forth out of that. We have to trust Him. God always has a good reason behind our bad providences. And that's why William Cooper wrote in his wonderful hymn, Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. And we have to remember that. And since God's ways are not our ways, we must learn to trust Him. As Isaiah again, chapter 55, verse 9 says, For as the, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we just have to trust Him. In Psalm 73, Asaph was mourning. Why in the, wicked do the, why, why in the world does the wicked seem to prevail? Why does it seem that the wicked seem to win the elections and the righteous lose? Why is it that the wicked seem to be healthy and prosperous and everything's going wonderful for them and we're in under all these trials and we're sick and we're poor? Why is it? Lord, has your, has your government failed? What's wrong with this? And his thoughts in Psalm 73, were entangled and it brought him down in depression. And he was, he, he was almost wanting to, to check out of life. I'm ready to leave this. Give up on all this religion stuff. His thoughts were entangled because he was looking at life from the world's perspective. And he was deeply depressed because of it. But then he writes down in Psalm 73, but then I came into the sanctuary of God. And when I came into the sanctuary of God, where God's presence is, where the Word of God is expounded, his perspective began to change. And he began to look at the same circumstances from God's perspective. And it lifted his spirit. And it gave him hope. And he could say and understand that there will be a payday someday. The wicked seem to be getting off scot-free now, but one day they will give an account before Almighty God. And he found consolation in that. One day their feet will slip and they will be cast down to destruction. And he found strength in God. He found God to be his refuge. And then he ends by saying, the nearness of God is my good. When he came into the sanctuary of God, his perspective and outlook changed because he began to look at it not from his perspective, but from God's perspective. And I think that's what the saints need to do in every age. Many might be tempted to view Paul's prison years as a horrible disaster 
Lord, how could you do this? I mean, this is the Apostle Paul, probably the most gifted man, the most gifted evangelist. He had more spiritual gifts than anybody else probably in the first century. And why are you locking him up? What are you putting him on a shelf? Are you through with him? What are you doing? He ought to be out preaching. He ought to be out establishing churches. Why do you have him locked up in prison? Surely you could use him in a more effective way. And God's plan seemed, could be seen by some to have failed for Paul's life. That it would have been far better for God to use him in his missionary activities to preach and on and on. But God had him in prison. And this is where again we need to realize that Paul was exactly where God wanted him to be. Exactly. God didn't want Paul out preaching at this stage of his life. He didn't want him out planting churches. He didn't want him doing all those things right now to be free to preach and move from place to place. He was exactly where God wanted him to be. And the reason why we know that is because when he ends up in Rome, he writes four letters. And one of those is the letter to the Philippians. And in the book of Philippians, Paul begins to share all the blessings that have come to him while he's in prison. He begins to speak of just the incredible blessings of having God's peace and joy. Read Philippians, it's overflowing with joy that he had learned humility and contentment in those difficult circumstances. And even that, More than that, the advancement of the Gospel to the whole Praetorian Guard, which would have never heard the Gospel had he not been in prison. Because he was looking at it from God's perspective. So that prison times are profitable times for the saints of God who bow to the sovereignty of God. This is not a wasted time for Paul. And it's not a wasted time for us. There's a man who spent 12 years in prison for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every year he'd be brought up before the judge and the judge would say to him that if you would stop preaching the gospel, I'll release you so you can go back to your wife and your little children. One had special needs. And every year he was given that decision. If I agree to stop preaching the Gospel, I can go home and take care of my wife and my children because they're suffering. And he said, but Lord, You've called me to preach the Gospel. I cannot deny You. I cannot agree to Your terms. And he would spend another long year in prison. The next year, the same thing. His faithfulness to the Gospel. He'd spend another year, 12 long years in prison for his faith and commitment to preach the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Why, O God? Such a godly man, a powerful preacher is locked away just like the Apostle Paul. Why, O God, did you lock him away like that? And of course, only the Lord knows all of His own reasons. But we know of one reason. And that's because while he was in prison for those 12 years, this gifted preacher wrote a story. And that story that he wrote now ranks next to the Bible as probably the most important Christian book ever written. 
And now you know who it is. The rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. It's John Bunyan, and the book is Pilgrim's Progress. Never would have been written without 12 years in prison so that our God, through His grace and goodness, can cause great things to triumph over trying circumstances. This is the God we worship. This is the God that ordained Paul to be in prison. This is the God that sometimes ordains trials in our life. That He can bring amazing good out of prison times. And we need to trust that that will be true for us as well. If we trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and don't lean on our own understanding, but in all of our ways acknowledge Him and He'll make our path straight. Well, at this time, we're going to um, close in a, in a hymn in just a second. We'll get ready for the baptism for Daphne. So as we move in direction, let me close us in prayer and then Jeremy will lead us in our, our hymn. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank You, Lord, for what we can glean from this uh, difficult time in Paul's life in Caesarea. We thank You, Lord, that we can understand and see how a godly man responded. And Lord, we pray for ourselves because we, we each have our own struggles, Lord. You know us. We each have our own besetting sins or trying circumstances and we just want to do what's pleasing to you Lord and we pray for that grace that you would lead and guide and bless and Lord if it's your will for us to be locked up in a prison for much longer than we desire Lord may we have confidence in your sovereign hand that you work all things together for good to those who love you to those who are called according to Your purpose. Give us the confidence, Lord, that Your ways are always best. They are higher than our ways, but they're always best. And even when we don't understand them, and even when we question them, Lord, Your ways are always best. So give us the grace to trust You, to look to You, to believe and hold on to the promises of God, and to know that You will work all things for good. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.